but it was possible that people are still discovering some of them, you know? And that's all you need for the story of possibility. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanny Show. I'm Sean, and today we're joined by Shakira Bourne, a film writer and novelist. Uh, her previous work includes Josephine Against the Sea, My Fishy Stepmom, and among others, uh, of specific interest today, Nightmare Island. Uh, welcome to the show, Shakira. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am excited to talk to you about this book because it's got creepy things. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite <laughs> oh it is your favorite i'm okay it is. I've, I've, i think i've just got a brand new question to add <laughs> uh so for folks at home uh, if you do have any questions you want to let us know what you think about this and past episodes just go to skiffingfanny.com slash listener suggestions um we put together together mailbag episodes and stuff and it would be very interesting if you have any interesting questions or you have read this book and would like to tell us what you thought about it so for Shakira, the big question to start us off with is this is a book called Nightmare Island from Scholastic. What the heck is this book about? Well, so I love writing fantasy and horror books about kids having encounters with Caribbean folklore characters, uh, creatures. So this is just my latest. Um, it's called, well, obviously Nightmare Island, and it came out last Tuesday, I believe. And it's about a 12-year-old filmmaker, Serenity who follows her family to this mysterious Caribbean island, and she discovers that it's haunted by Dwens, who are faceless children with backward feet in Caribbean mythology, and they lure you into the forest where you're lost forever. So um, Serenity has had this recurring nightmare for years, but she keeps it from her parents because they already favor her little brother piece, and she doesn't want to be seen as a type of problem child. So when her brother, Peace, suddenly becomes afraid of the dark and refuses to sleep alone, her parents carry him to for treatment on Duppy Island. So Serenity follows them and immediately she knows that something is wrong. This island is completely silent. It's in the Caribbean, yet it's, yet it's gray and foggy. And the facility is run by this creepy doctor called Dr. Whisper, who treats it as more of a jail than a clinic. And then she discovers that on top of all of that, it is is the home of Dwens, and they are very eager for her brother to join them. So she really has to um, use her her skills and her know how, and basically the love for her family to really to help her escape the island and keep them safe. So yes, this is I love I love the Caribbean folklore <laughs> thing. I'm going to come back to that because that that I'm very curious about your your approach. Uh, I wanted to start with, I think what was an interesting, like the way the story is written is, is written, like it has chapters, but you call them takes. Uh, and I I didn't know until I was reading your, your bio that you had written film. 
And so I think the answer to this is now somewhat obvious, but maybe you could talk a little bit about how uh, your interest in in film and and perhaps horror film in particular um, became touch points as you were kind of working on this book and structuring this book, whether that was just the titles of your chapters or even things you were kind of doing in the book itself were kind of influenced by things. I'm just curious if you could talk about that. Yeah, so um, I've done four films. I've written four films and produced three of them. Um, and then I directed the last one. So I can say right now that Nightmare Island um, was kind of a challenge for me because I started off with a what if, what if um, a person was trapped on an island full of duends, right? And this was like my first book really written outside of Barbados. So I've written the films, musicals, um, even the other short stories, and they're all set on Barbados. So this would be the first time that I am creating an entire island. So I did want to have some familiarity with it. I was like, okay, so I'm creating an entire island, um, which is a challenge to myself. So I just really wanted to have some comfort in the story. You know, something that I can rely on, something that I know, because I was like, I know nothing about this island. <laughs> Let me at least know <laughs> serenity, you know? So her being an amateur filmmaker was really um, quite interesting to me because I have put myself in some nightmare positions trying to get a good shot. I kid you not. Um, <laughs> I had actors in a cave, um, shooting a scene in a cave when there was an earthquake. And oh. honestly, we had no reason to be down in that cave. Literally, you could shoot the same scene in a room covered in black cloth and no one would know the difference. But I had to go down in the cave to make it more realistic. And so, um, you know, Serenity does a lot of questionable things in the name of trying to get a good shot. So um, there's that. <laughs> the take. So, you know, when you're on a film set, every time you shoot a scene is known as a take. So I thought that that would just be a cool thing to have instead of a chapter. It'd be like, okay, so this is a scene and this is the next scene. So instead of chapter one, it would be take one, take two. That is literally just me being cool. (laughs) (laughs) No, at least I hope people think it's cool. Um, But the main answer, and it's funny because, you know, when I make decisions, when I make writing decisions, they're for so many different reasons. It's never just one thing. So the main reason is Serenity's voice. So before I start writing, it does not matter if I have the entire story planned out. If I can't hear the character in my head, I can't start writing. And so I wish that I knew um, why I decided that Serenity should hear scores. So in the book, Serenity hears the scores from from different people and she sees um, life as a film set. So I knew that whatever she did, she would be comparing it to a film set and she would be comparing it to like, she'll be focusing on the horror elements in everyday life. So that's how she sees the world. And as soon as I started to understand how Serenity saw the world, then her voice came to me. So really all of that, I hope that answered your question. <laughs> it did. And I I think it's interesting because essentially you you took some inspiration from your your own life in the designing of of serenity which is really cool uh because i'll be honest we haven't had a lot of people who've actually worked and made films on our shows so hearing your passion about film and how that influenced this book is just really exciting to me <laughs> <laughs> good because <laughs> yeah it it was um 
you know, in writing this, it was really a challenge because, as I said, not only did I set it in an island that was um, fictional and I had to now create um, what this island would be like, I took away all of the major senses that I use when I'm writing. So, you know, I took away color. I took away sound. <laughs> you know, I took away food. I did not do, I did not realize how much I limited myself until I started to write. Um, but I didn't realize that in writing, depending on those elements when describing the setting and when describing people so much. So when I took them away, I really only had serenity and her voice and how she saw the world. Um, and so, you know, I, I was very grateful that at least I had that. That that leads me to, and you kind of brought it up earlier, is serenity has, like, as you said, she, she essentially hears the scores in people. So I think there's a detail early in the book that, um, like rain is it, it tells her that her mother is nearby if I recall yes. correctly it's a lot of those little details which at first just kind of seem oh they're just kind of fun little things that a kid does until mm-hmm. the island and then there's this like one of the there's lots of reasons the island's unsettling uh, but yes. the music thing in particular because she hears the music and then there are people that don't have that or there's no mm-hmm. music and there's silence yes. and it's suddenly like well, this is an experience for her where the world doesn't make sense or it's starting to to feel she feels off. It's like Spidey sense, but mm-hmm. for music. Yes. And it it seemed to me that you were kind of exploring maybe not directly like a humanness that's part of music um, mm-hmm. or, or a soul or, or something like that. Um, yeah. And I was curious if you could talk a bit about. You know, essentially, like yeah. if I'm reading too much into it or like what what you kind of saw is that like significance of the being able to sort of sense music as almost like a, a barometer of the life of the world. Yes. Um, no, you're exactly right. And it's funny that you should say is about detecting a soul because there is a subtext of the theme of soul throughout this entire novel, especially like um, Dwen's they don't have faces. So when you can't see a person's facial expression like you know where do you get judgment from you judge them from their actions and in serenity's case she judges them from the music that she hears so you could if you are a terrible person she would hear a discordant type of song coming from your core you know it it is like if you had to describe if you had to have music what do you think you would sound like so it's really about what you think is like your biggest what is what are you made out of so for example i would think that i might sound like a typing keyboard because that is what i spend the majority of my day doing you know a person who plays the trumpet might think that they sound like a particular um chord like their favorite chord you know so a person who loves motorcycles may sound like an engine so it's really serenity listens to what you know is important she hears what is important to a person and she hears, it's like she hears their humanity, their level of humanity. Um, so you are very right. And even with butterflies, you know, in um, Japanese folklore, they're like the butterfly is a, a personification of a person's soul. So that's why the oh. butterflies are so in, um, integral to the story. And, uh, you know, um, and they also have a dark side too. So like, for example, butterflies eat dead animals and they drink sweat and tears i had no idea because you know you would see a butterfly and be like oh it's so pretty but they have a dark side as well so there's a lot of symbolism in terms of um seeing souls and seeing humanities as this throughout the book so you definitely were spot on with this 
I'm glad I caught on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. You know, for a kid, because you know, it's for you know, eight to twelve year olds is the main target audience. Sure. You know, so I don't know if they would get it on a first read. I don't know if they would even get it on a second one. But maybe they would reread this when they're older and be like, "Oh my gosh, no, I'm seeing this." You know, so um, I I I just find it um interesting to do. And my poor editor. She's the one who's always have to, who always has to be like, okay, Shakira, this is too much. <laughs> this is too deep. Remember, they're you know they're for eight to twelve year olds. You don't need to go so far. But I, you know, that's just I just like it. <laughs> I like when I I like re reread value. You know, I like people to reread and and notice new things. So yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Is like, well, maybe it just encourages them to read again so they can catch different details as they get a little older. Yes, for sure. I mean, for right now, all they know, all the kids know is that Serenity hates silence. And now she's on an island where she can't depend on the one thing that gives her comfort. And that is hearing music and hearing noise. So even if they just understand that, that's perfect. You know, later on, we can talk about the souls. And, you know, when I when I hopefully do some school visits, I can talk about the soul. But um. Yeah, I, I just like having multiple layers um, in stories. That's really, I mean, and this too, actually, you made me think again, and I, I'd written it down in my notes, uh, which mm-hmm. is uh, another angle, like I, perhaps another layer, if you will, uh, was, you know, me, I was thinking like all kids, you know, if they have like a device where they listen to music or they have a thing like their mm-hmm. favorite book or their favorite toy, like if you take that thing from them, it's like pretty devastating. Yes. And for serenity the ipod is there's a moment when the parents take away her ipod because she has quote unquote misbehaved and Mm -hmm. it has an even deeper layer of significance because of what you've been talking about here about how much sound and music and what she hears in the world affect how she interprets the world even right down to something as simple as being able to like listen to music in general so it's not just the kid getting the toy take it away it's actually like severing some part of her from yes. the world as it were yes and and you know that is why um so you know she gives a lot of trouble um you know she yes. does a lot of things i mean she sneaks onto an island when she's supposed to be at her grandma's but you know her parents like scold her um but the real punishment taking away her ipod is like taking away like the one thing that is causing her is allowing her to survive yeah. And notice that the parents didn't take it away immediately. It was her brother who suggested it because yes. he knew how devastating it would be for her. And um, and even her offering, well, I, I shouldn't give to spoilers, <laughs> sure, but yeah. her voluntarily surrendering her iPod later on in the story is like, it, it shows that has even more significance because it's, as you said, it's not just a toy. It is, it is something that is connected to her inner self. Oh, I like, I love that. That is really, really fun. I bet kids are going to like that. <laughs> I'll ask my students. I, I'm teaching a bunch of, of high schoolers. They may, they're like yeah. a little bit older, but yeah, I may ask them, uh, what do they think? How important music is to them? And like kind of get their, their sense and see how they feel. Cause it, it's a really cool idea to see it explored in this way. So a plus. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, because I had done some research on if this was even possible. And, you know, I read about people who see see in color, who see different colors. Oh, uh, yeah. Like synesthesia. You know? 
Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So I was like, when well, music is possible. <laughs> and that's all yeah. I need. All I need is for it to be possible. I love that. That all you need is for possible. I want to come back to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because no I, I, I have some ideas about the uh, or questions about like the the island itself and the world you're creating. But mm-hmm. you had mentioned in in us talking about this, the issue of music, uh, about writing for eight to 12 year olds, because this is a mm-hmm. middle grade book. And so it is for a younger audience. And I was curious because you have written some adult work and you have written mm-hmm. young adults. And, a, and I think if I'm correct, three middle grade, you've written a bunch in this. And I, I'm really curious what, what kind of draws you to writing for that kind of younger audience rather than strictly adult fiction i'm not saying that you're not interested mm-hmm. in adult fiction i just mean what about like what draws you to to this younger audience and the writing for that particular audience oh that's an amazing question um actually um writing for middle grade is something that i did not plan to do um I ha- it happened by accident so i started off as a short fiction writer i never thought i would be able to write a book so I used to write adult literary short stories because that was the type of books that I was reading in the Caribbean. You know, the Caribbean is known for its Caribbean literary books. Mm-hmm. So that's what I grew up reading. I mean, thinking that's all I could write, that I was allowed to write. So I would be reading other books, other genre fiction, but they were not set in the Caribbean. They were not Caribbean based. All I was, you know, all I was seeing was Caribbean literary. So I just assumed that that, that is what I am to write. So um, I had, let me see, I think I had a project that got canceled and um, there was this competition called the Burt Award for Caribbean Young Adult Literature. And I read an interview where one of the previous winners said that she wrote her book in two weeks. And at that time, I had three weeks. So I was like, wow, well, I have some time, you know, if she could do it in two weeks, I should be able to write this kid's book in three weeks, right? And the idea that came to me is something of, It came from a short story that I read in school when I was about 12 years old. And it was about a fisherman who became obsessed with a mermaid. And basically, um, it was a short story. And it ended with the the villagers finding his clothing on the shore. And neither he or the mermaid were ever heard from again. And I remember how that drove me mad even back then. Because I was like, hold on, this story is not finished. I need to know what happened. You know, this, this can't be it. So when I decided that I wanted to write a book for kids, I remember I knew nothing at all about writing for kids. (laughs) When I decided I was going to do this thing, I decided, okay, I'm going to tell the story of what happened with this fisherman if he had a daughter. And that became Josephine Against the Sea and it's published as My Fishy Stepmom in the Caribbean. So um, when I was writing it, I thought that I was writing young adults (laughs) because at the time I had not read any books for kids really (laughs) so I you know the main character was nine years old um and she you know she was faced with this girl her her dad's new girlfriend is not human and you know I wrote the story it was 28,000 words by the time I finished my first draft and I really loved it because at the time writing that story reminded me why I love to write I have been writing for like, I have been a commission writer, a freelance writer for, for a very long time. But at that point, I forgot what it was like to write for fun and to actually enjoy, like, ah. enjoy what you're writing. It was my first time writing magic um, fantasy. So I was just like, I love this so much. 
So I decided, um, you know what, this may be appealing to people outside of Barbados and outside the Caribbean. And that's when I Googled how to get a book published. <laughs> and then Googling that, I realized, oh, crap, this is not a young adult book, you know, starring a nine year old that is only 28,000 words. It's actually more middle grade. And that's when I even found out what middle grade was. So um, I, when I say it was an accident, I wrote the story. Um, I knew I had I had um, Josephine's voice in my head. I wrote the story and then I started to understand the elements of writing for kids. Um, before I could even like process everything, I had an agent four months later. Um, the book was shortlisted for the same competition in the Caribbean. And suddenly I was a kid lit writer. <laughs> and that was four years ago. That's incredible. Yes. I, like how you, I just fell into it. Oops. <laughs> Literally, I mean, I used to write um, for my adult work. I used to write from a child's perspective for a lot of stories because I felt like that innocence and naivety um, lended to really reflecting the world as, Ah. right. So I used to write stories like maybe the theme is human trafficking, but I would tell it through the eyes of a child. So I was familiar with writing for kids and things that they would say and how they would say. That wasn't new. It's just that I never thought I would write four kids until you know i wrote that story in three weeks (laughs) out of curiosity given that you've mentioned you've written child characters in both of these different uh demographic works of literature do you find that there's i mean other than possible language differences do you find Mm -hmm. that there's significant differences between how you have to approach writing kids for middle grade versus writing kids in adult fiction in terms of voice, no different. Um, oh, okay. What changes is the situation that you have them in. So, and if it's adult themes. So with middle grade, it's mainly about um, the the character thinking about their family and their school. And, you know, for example, it's, it's, it's like dealing with issues that are of concern to somebody that age. When you're writing about it from an adult, um, I mean, for an adult um, audience, you are seeing adults and you're seeing them act in a particular way and you're seeing harshness around you and you are like highlighting the biases and the hypocrisy as a child because a child would see a complicated situation very simply. So like, um, so the issues that the child is discussing are more adult issues, if you understand. So, for example, I have a story called um, Getting ba- Getting Back at... No, not that one. It's called, um, oh gosh, Getting Married, okay. right? And in the story, there is a scene where the kid watches her father. She's she's hiding under the table because she sneaks into a house to get a piece of cake, right? So okay. she's in the kitchen underneath the kitchen table, hiding underneath the tablecloth. And her father comes in with uh, uh, another woman who is not her mother and they have sex on the table. Oh, goodness. So as so how I'm describing it, everybody who's reading the story knows what the father is doing. But for the kid, she has no idea. All she knows is that they're fighting, you know. So she talks about them fighting and the sounds that they're making and how her father must be really upset because he's grunting. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, I'm I would not write that for a middle grade audience. Of course, but, yeah. You know, so what she witnessed was basically, you know, an act of um of cheating in the story, and she doesn't understand it. 
But later on, when we're at the wedding with her father and mother officially getting married, we understand, you know, the relevance of that moment. And they said we as the reader. So um, it's different. The voice is the same because they're looking at the world and they're describing the world in the same way, using the same vocabulary that they would have for that age group and everything. It's just really the situation and the themes that you're trying to highlight. I really like this because essentially part of what you're saying is how readers approach the work somewhat affects this as well. Because with the example you just gave, you know, the kid may not know, but Mm -hmm. as as theoretically adult or adult ish readers, we're able to sort of read between the lines so we can kind of see the in this case, somewhat I guess, ethical or behavioral issues that are embodied in it. And and that was the entire point of the story. The point of the story is why do people feel the need to get married when the relationship is broken? So that was the entire thing. Yeah. But it was told, it was told from the perspective of of a kid wanting a slice of cake. That's so fascinating. That's a fascinating way to approach that. You get so much fun doing it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you've got to stop. You got me feeling to write adult again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Shakira's editor. It's not my fault. (laughs) So uh, why don't we, why don't we jump back towards Nightmare Island, then go Mm -hmm. back to talking about uh, the way that you've approached the themes in this book. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that you know, you had mentioned at the very beginning, you're describing the book, there's these recurring dreams. Uh, and one of the things that I thought was interesting was how unsettling some of this book is. I mean, some of it is, is I think, very, very easily identifiable as just horror. It's, I mean, the, the mm-hmm. duenne are pretty terrifying. Uh, <laughs> but some of it's just like unsettling. Like you think things bad could happen there. And I was thinking in particular about the atmosphere of the facility where Dr. Whisper works and also Dr. Whisper. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I was hoping you could talk about, you'd mentioned fog and some of that. And I was, I was hoping you talk about like constructing this space and the atmosphere of this space for, you know, a a younger audience that has that unsettledness to it. Yeah. Um, so creating Duppy Island, and for those who don't know, Duppy is an evil spirit in Bajan folklore, right? So the fact that the island is called Duppy Island is already <laughs> unsettling. Yeah. But Serenity, as a horror buff and a filmmaker, loves it because in her head, this is the perfect place to shoot a horror movie. She does not actually think that she would be, you know, she would find herself in one. So um, in creating this island, I, you know, I did some research looking at... Um, you know, isolated islands, what you would have, you know, and I just, I wish that I knew exactly how it came to be. I know that I was thinking about Pelican Island, which was, uh, uh, it was like a small island off of Barbados, like a sugar loading port. So I did go back and um, look at some, some old pictures of Pelican Island to see what the structures were like and, um, and what it would be, you know, how it would be if this island was maybe like an hour away. <laughs> ah. And um, honestly, it, it was, I think I cheated a bit um, because <laughs> remember I said that this is my first time writing a book outside of Barbados. So I basically put a street, like an abandoned gray street, like facility, like that might be on Barbados. That may be like, for example, we have chattel houses here. Which were, uh, which were houses that could be moved from plantation to plantation. So in this book, I have that is a facility with five chattel houses. 
However, unlike in Barbados, which where chattel houses are like four or five different colors and very bright and beautiful, the chattel houses on this island are just completely gray because color is too loud for this island, you know? Mm, <laughs> so yeah. um, in terms of um, there are no fruits, um, it's canned food. So there's nothing natural about this facility, even though it is on an island. So there's a, a section in the book where um, Serenity is looking at coconuts um outside of the facility and you know her mom is like oh i'm sorry we don't have any coconut milk we don't have any coconut water because it's not allowed on that tiny square so it's like she's surrounded by nature but she is in this tiny facility where nature is forbidden you know so it was about trying to think about oh gosh it was it was how to it was how to create a a full environment before even though you have taken away everything that gives a place life. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it was, and then, you know, what's funny. Um, whenever I write a book, oh gosh, I should write a book about uh, winning the lottery because whenever I write a book, some element of it comes true and it's the freakiest thing. So I wrote a book about an island that is completely gray. And then in two, in 2021, when I was writing it, um, a volcano erupted in a nearby island, St. Vincent, and the ash from St. Vincent blew over to, to Barbados and it covered the entire island. So the entire island was gray, you know? I remember. And, yes. And it was the freakiest thing because I was like, how is it that I am creating this gray island in my head and suddenly I can look out of my window and see how gray it is? And it was so unsettling for me, not only because, you know, I wrote about this, but I could not open a window. I could not get a breath of fresh air. All of the green, all of the color was gone. And it was just a depressing, it was like a depressing two or three days. And I felt, I felt so stifled. So then I was able now to think about how serenity would feel when everything that she loves really has been taken away from her. And she's in this place that is really a horror movie but she can get no joy from it that is such an interesting thing to think about that to some degree like a real world event even for a short period of time that it sort of exposed you to how important these things are that we may not necessarily think about exactly it's like we are okay so the caribbean is colorful like i'm accustomed to seeing color like um, how would you feel if you're in a place where color is forbidden, where everything is gray? You don't understand the effect that that has. In fact, when I, I had studied in Scotland for a year and um, Scotland is pretty foggy. I love it, though. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I was in some sort of uh, gothic film. But, you know, after a couple months, I realized that the lack of sun and, and not having sun was really starting to affect my mood. You know, um, yeah. So, so it's like the things that you don't realize until they're gone. And, you know, it, that that's part of the horror, I think, in this book. So, yes, there are faceless kids, but that's not the real horror about the book. I mean, in the book. That's that's kind of terrifying to think about that. It's not the faceless, <laughs> faceless creatures that are. No, that's not what it, it's the <laughs> the soul being sucked out of a space. Essentially. Yes. yes, that's a perfect way to put it. Yes. I, I was thinking uh, you're mentioning, you know, missing the sun and I live, I live in Minnesota. And so we mm-hmm. get those right now. Our sun is out 
like really early and runs forever because we're so far north. Uh, so it's still s- relatively sunny out at the moment at 7.37 p.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the, in winter, it's kind of the opposite. Our days are much shorter and it gets dark. And we have a thing called seasonal affect syndrome where they basically say some people like they just get depressed and they have a Mm -hmm. hard time functioning because they're not getting even if it's sunny, it might be overcast. So everything's, as you say, kind of great. I mean, it's there's still trees and like pine trees are green, like there's still some color a little bit, Mm -hmm. but it's still like it's not everybody can adjust to that. It's kind of hard. Yeah. Yes. And that's perfect because you need, even on this island, there's no, it never gets dark. It's just, it's just always gray. So you, the, even your body clock has to adjust. And yeah. poor serenity. Honestly, I really tortured the girl in this book. I feel really bad for her. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I really, um, you know, I, you know, facing your fears and uh, is one of the, the main themes in, in horror Um, when I write horror. So I literally just put her nightmare, like her worst nightmare. <laughs> And I just put her in it. It's just terrible. (laughs) I mean, it is. You are writing a horror novel. So I suppose (laughs) she knew what she was getting into. (laughs) It's true. And, you know, and I really hope that you that readers understand that. Yes, even though this is a nightmare for her, the fact that she loves horror, she's still getting some kind of perverse joy from it. Because, (laughs) you know, because she can film it because it's the scariest thing that that has happened to her and this is what she wants to capture on film that's fascinating (laughs) (laughs) you're not wrong though they're sort of yeah she's being tortured but also kind of getting ideas right now (laughs) which is her voice you know she sees something terrifying and at the same time she goes huh if this was a movie this is what they would sound like Uh, I actually have a curious question because we've been talking about Mm -hmm. the island and it being gray and, and and I was trying to think back to the, my knowledge of the Caribbean islands, mm-hmm. and I was wondering, maybe you have from, from a Bayesian perspective, is, is there, you know, myths or tall tales about, mm-hmm. like, mysterious islands in that region, other than, like, Bermuda, which people mm-hmm. say there's, like, a giant creature that lives in the ocean and swallows planes, and uh, mm-hmm. there's a lot of other ideas about that area. But I was curious if you had, if that's a thing you had heard about. No, not at all. Um, I have, I have not. And, you know, uh, we have a few folklore stories. um, And I am actually going to be writing about the two major ones. um, (laughs) I can tell you about that later. But um, the two major stories um, have nothing to do with Abandoned Island. It was really just me wanting to tell a story about Dwen's knowing that Dwens live in a forest and, you know, Barbados is very flat. There's not a lot of forests there. So I did have to create an island for sure for the, for the Dwens to be unless, you know, I created a story where Dwens were hiding in sugarcane fields. And no, I'm telling you this, I'm realizing that that would be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yes. um, So yeah, I I did have, you know, the setting where Dwens would be present is not really present here. So I did have to create my own thing. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Okay. But yeah, it may be a, a, a somewhat flat island, but you do have the remnants of space cannons. Yes, <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> and the harp gun is, I, I literally have that bookmark that, you know, when, before I can write a book, I think about it for a very long time. Um, With, with Nightmare Island, I had that, oh, what if a person was trapped on 
an island full of twins, but that was not enough for a story for me. So I just sure. literally, I have an email address where I send ideas for anything. So I call it my brainstorming email address. So I just sent it to that email address and I just put it at the back of my head. And then when I read Tristan Strong breaks a hole, um, punches a hole in the sky by Kwame Ambalia, oh, yes. another middle grade book. Right. So he had a manifestation of twins in that book from Ghana called Motia. But so it was the same creatures faceless with backward feet. However, these particular creatures were skilled herbalists and, and healers. And suddenly, what if a family or what if a person was stuck on an island full of dwens became what if a family that needed healing in some way were stuck on an island full of dwens? And that is when the story really started to come together in my head. So how did we start to talk about this? I have no oh, idea. Then this is how this works. We just get into a, <laughs> a wild conversation about all kinds of interesting things. Oh, right. Um, so different, right. How I think about a story. So with the heart then. I have visited the heart gum, you know, I've, I've taken video and I have maybe a slight idea, but it's still percolating. Ooh. I need more. So yeah, it, a book about heart gun is coming. Just, I don't know when. I am very curious because the only other person yeah. that I know of who has written about them in mm-hmm. a genre fiction space is Tobias Bakel. Yes, 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 mm-hmm. yes. But very yeah. different stuff, <laughs> very different monstrosity yeah. of things. So yeah. Very yeah. interesting. Okay, well, I look forward to seeing what comes of that. I'll have to wait 8,000 years, but still. <laughs> of... it's, it's true. <laughs> you could finish it next week. I still won't see it till like 2025. <laughs> it's, it's true. <laughs> oh, boy, yeah. Um, yeah, it's true. But it's coming. It's coming. Your space guns are going to have a story. Another oh, story. That's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. So on the subject of research, uh, mm-hmm. because... We had talked a little bit about about this off podcast, and I was hoping to rehash some of it and, and, and for the listeners, because mm-hmm. in this book, um, you have this island, which we've been talking about, and it's uh, called Duppy Island. And this island has stories that people tell about it, uh, I- including this idea that there was a cholera colony on this island in mm-hmm. uh, during the 1854 cholera epidemic in mm-hmm. Barbados, which also hit several other islands in the region. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of sort of these stories about our perceptions of, of places and the histories they contain and how you were kind of weaving this idea into your into this particular book. So this theme is another one that emerged as I was writing. And I was like, where, where did this come from? <laughs> you know, um, basically, you know, we have twins who are um, faceless children who apparently died before they were baptized, right? Um, that's the, the legend of how a Dwen is created. So, you know, I was thinking, okay, so if children died, they would have to be buried somewhere, you know? And so what if these graves were um, lost or they were unclaimed or people didn't know? And it came back, I, I don't remember exactly how the cholera theme came in, but I remember when I went on a tour with the Barbados Museum and this is, a, we went to an area that I pass almost every day. And there is this monument that says, you know, dedicated to the people who died in Barbados during the cholera epidemic in, um, in, the 18, in 1854. And I was like, 
I am literally walking on a mass grave site almost every day and did not have a clue. You know, as I told you, this was not something that is taught in schools. Well, at least not um, until maybe advanced history. And I dropped history <laughs> in favor <laughs> of geography. <laughs> right. So so I know for sure I was not um, taught about the cholera epidemic as a kid in school. But in, in 1854... Um, it killed over 20,000 Barbadians um, um, when it came to the island. So a ship, and there are different theories about where the ship came from. It's, it was either Jamaica or St. Croix. But whatever happened, um, one of the workers on the ship gave the clothing to a washerwoman in Bridgetown, which is our city center, to wash. And apparently she was the person like, who got who caught the disease. And then it spread around Bridgetown throughout the entire parish. Um, apparently, I think um, I had read that 9,000 of those deaths alone were from villages in Bridgetown. And oh so goodness. what happened is, you know, you have so many dead people, the burial grounds would have filled up. Or, or um, maybe people couldn't afford now to be buried in, um, in, in, in graveyards. So all of these mass graves um, sprung up around the islands. Um, like so where there was bare land, people were actually burnt, you know, in in these mass grave sites. Now we do have monuments that are dedicated, you know, that are that have been placed by some of the, the grave sites. Um, but as I said, this is not something that I learned in school. I walk past the monument monument without actually reading it, you know? And so, you know, I started thinking about the forgotten people. So if I have, and, and I spoke, I did speak to a historian about if all of the um, cholera grave sites were known. And she said, well, most of them are because people and the villagers in the area would know that this is, this was a, a mass, mass grave site and would have, you know, spoken about it. But it was possible that people are still discovering some of them, you know, and that's all you need for the story, a possibility, so on my make-believe island, which is not far from Barbados in my head, you know, people would have been shipped out, you know, and put on this island, you know, while they recovered from cholera and they never did. So it really was like a death place, you know? And yeah. so, so it was really, these were people that became forgotten on the island. So, um, and I think, you know what, this came about because um i was thinking about like how you know the kids in particular would have gotten there and then also um there was a facility you know um when when i was researching um cholera there was a facility that people you know would build and there were particular rooms for the more advanced cases so in my head i just kind of put the facility on my fictional island oh interesting yeah so one thing I did look up because I, I remember you you mentioned roughly around twenty thousand people uh, died from the eighteen fifty four cholera cholera epidemic, and I was really curious what the mm -hmm. population was at that time because it's mm -hmm. it's not a giant island. Um, no. <laughs> and the Barbados Statistical Service, your government mm -hmm. website, uh, says approximately one hundred and fifty two thousand ish people, which. If 20,000 of that number, like that is a very significant chunk yes. of people. You would not yes. miss that. That would be that would be yes. like national news, essentially. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, 
Yes, it was a, a huge, I mean, honestly, once I learned about it, suddenly I started seeing it everywhere, you know, yeah. as I see any monuments and see any literature. But, you know, I, and I, you know, I'm just speaking for myself here, but it was not an event that I learned about in school. And um, as a result, by the way, as a result of, of the epidemic, which lasted about a year, um, there were so many public health reforms because cholera kind of revealed like the poor social conditions um, under which people were living. So they had regular cleaning and washing of the streets. So they established a pipe to water system afterwards. There was a, a, a permanent board of health that was created. So because of this, this thing in history, it, it, it really affects it, it affected the social initiatives that are still present today. But, you know, it, you know, I, I wish I had learned about it in school. I wish I had maybe kept history. Maybe if anyone is listening to the podcast who went to school <laughs> in Barbados, who kept on history after um, fifth farm or after they were 15 could tell me if maybe they learned about it in school. But I, I surely didn't. It really makes me wonder, you know, because like societies forget stuff like or well, forget yeah. is the wrong word. We just don't have a deep societal knowledge of things. Yes. But what what is the reasons? So I and mean, I'm not saying you necessarily have the answer, but you might have thoughts on this of like, why why do we do that? Why do we lose that collective memory? Obviously, part of it's education. But I wonder if there's some aspect of like, this is a horrible thing that happened. And we we, we want to like collectively move on and not think yeah. about it. I think because it's so painful, you know, the memory is so painful for people. They just kind of want to forget about it and move on. They don't speak about it. I, I yeah. think, you know, and that and that goes for any like traumatic, <laughs> traumatic um thing like that. Um, you know, that's why I I wanted to make sure that I put it in in into a kid's book, especially. I mean, it's not historically factual, you know, but yeah. at least it it raises awareness of the issue and it's in a horror book. And, you know, it's not something that hopefully a, a kid would read the book for entertainment and just get a little bit of this knowledge or their curiosity was despite a little bit so that maybe they would walk past a monument and because they read about the cholera um epidemic in this book they might note the word cholera may jump out on the monument they well hold on this is this is what happened you know but i think people are just interested in moving on and then we don't have enough tributes and um and reminders of what happened, even in, in terms of, of artistic, in an artistic way. Like, you know, you would have maybe um, a university would put on a lecture about this, or maybe the, you know, if you're reading a historical journal, it might be like this, but it is catering to people who already know about the event and not really the general population. Yeah. So I think that this is where artists and, you know, artists, writers, painters, you know, anyone can really um be key to highlight certain issues throughout history there's a lesson plan to be made for your book that helps <laughs> it's like encourages students to do some research i'm just saying you know, you know people would listen to this podcast and think that this book is really deep, really deep but really <laughs> it truly is a, a fun entertaining story about a girl trapped on an island with scary children yes it, it, really it is, is absolutely <laughs> 
yeah, I don't, I don't want to suggest that like the book is is just all like very serious. Like, I mean, there is some of that here, but it is also yeah. having a lot of fun with uh, Serenity's voice, uh, the structure, which we kind of talked about a little bit. Lots of movie movie stuff, which I found really, really fun. Even when the Dwen show up, it's uh, they're creepy. <laughs> but they're, they're maybe not like because I think part of the your approach is making this not so scary that children mm-hmm. can never sleep again. Uh, no. But they're still they're actually they are pretty terrifying. Now that I think about it. They are. Yeah, but it's, it's simply because they're 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 very different from what we expect. But yeah. they, are, they are creepy. Don't get me wrong. They are. But, you know, that's that's what racing, you know, horror is not really about creating fear is allowing a person to release it, allowing a kid to to release it because they have fear inside of them. Yeah. And it's about showing, especially middle grade, horror and hope goes hand in hand. And so I think that, you know, horror stories from in a middle grade audience in particular showing kids how brave they can be. So I'm not writing, it's called, it is called Nightmare Island, but I'm not writing to give your kids nightmares. You know, right. I'm writing really for them to to see themselves as heroes you know that they can defeat the odds against this and and you know that's what it really is because it's really about surviving against the odds you you maybe think about it like the very first act that she takes is to sneak onto a boat to get onto the (laughs) island which like the level of like you have to have a a, a lot of confidence <laughs> to to do something like that because it's not a short boat trip. <laughs> <laughs> I've not confidence, a lot of motivation. True, and that, that, that. and that's and that's the key. So, you know, it, it's like a lot of motivation, and she wanted to to be with her family, and she wanted to shoot this horror movie, and so she was determined to go. Honestly, um, when I I went down to the port, the Barbados port. <laughs> seem like the logistics of how it could possibly happen that a 12 year old girl sneaks onto a boat and you know what it was possible and that's all i need i keep saying it (laughs) all i needed was the possibility (laughs) it's so much fun so yeah i know that we mentioned duana bunch uh, and i was i was hoping to talk a little about there's this great element in the book that you're playing around with of uh, uh, the example that stuck out to me was the way Dr. Whisper talks about the silver bl- butterfly versus talking mm-hmm. about the Dwen because uh, Serenity is interested in both of those. She's dreaming about the silver butterfly and she's seen Dwen. And so she's like, they're, they're real. And he says, they're all nonsense. Like none of it exists, but mm-hmm. for different reasons, because there seem to be they're at this facility that is historically meant to be like a medical semi-scientific space it now has this other purpose that's being attached to it which also has semi-scientific equalities to it but Mm -hmm. now with an added touch of the folklore and it seemed you were kind of playing with those boundaries between what we might say is traditionally scientific and what we might say is traditionally folkloric Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I was hoping you could talk a little about like teasing those threads out and playing around in that space Oh gosh, that's such a good question. Um, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, hold on. If I talk about these scientific elements, so all right, so remember I told you about the Motia, who are skilled herbalists and healers, yes. right? So you know that that's what scientists are. <laughs> they are, they are, they're they're skilled healers. You know, in some way. So that so the uh, uh, an underlying theme in the book is the concept of perfection and how far. A, a parent would go to ensure 
that they get the perfect child, you know? Yeah. So I did speak to a scientist about designer babies and genetic modification and gene selection and what body parts could be grown in a lab, for instance. I really, again, I was just searching for the possibility of something to happen, right? <laughs> sure. And she, I remember she told me, I was like, is it possible? Okay, we know that we can select, possibly select um, the eye color for a kid, you know? Sure. Is it possible to select personality traits? Because we have this family who loves silence. So something that would be very important to them is that they get, they have this child who is like very silent, <laughs> you know, and does not create a lot of noise. So it's like, how far would a parent go to ensure that they have um, certain characteristics for their child? So she had told me at the time that um, it's not possible. Right. So I was like, shoot, because but it's because of how complex the human mind is, you know, and it's not possible to separate those DNA strands that you can't separate a strand for humor, especially if the person is a humorous, you know, (laughs) it's one thing to find the strand, but then the person has to have the strand. So then I was like, okay, so what if it wasn't from a human? What if it was from a blank slate? And she was like, well, no, that is not is a blank slate. No is possible because no is is not as complex as a human mind, you know? So from the time she told me, okay, now that is possible, I was like, okay, good. Now I can see how to blend the scientific possibility with what happens in the story, right? So that's the scientific element. Um, you know, I did, I did a, the research was really freaky though. I got to say, cause you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, everyone knows about the, the human error on the rats, <laughs> you know, that yeah, they yeah. Grown, right. So, you know, I was looking at it and it was so freaky and I was like, okay, so I definitely need to have a scene where there are human parts on animals. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sorry, but that's, um, that's creepy. <laughs> yeah, but it, it really is how far. You know, I, and and I, I'm not giving spoilers, but the whole reason the facility exists is because there are a lot of parents who would pay a, a lot of money, you know, to have this possibility be become real, you know. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's something that you think about is like because in the book, you know, the, they think about, OK, is it bad of the parent or is it that a parent wants to give their child the best possibility of success in this life? Is that a bad thing? So there is a lot of um, different gray morality type questions going on. And a lot of people are going to hate Serenity's parents. I know this, Um, Mm -hmm. but hopefully more people, and this is the adults, the kids, they're not going to be thinking about this. (laughs) Um, But hopefully people will see what they were trying to do and that it did not come from a place of malice. Um, and that's the scientific scientific element with the folklore now. That this is um in terms of trying to decide what is real or lore is something that it fascinates me about Caribbean folklore because there's no proof that these characters do not exist. Okay. Sure. And um I, I remember reading a story. I cannot remember which island it is, and it's best not to say it. Um, but a person in a village killed an old woman. It was a, a mass attack on a on an old woman. 
And when the police came to investigate, they claimed that she was a sukuya, who is uh, in Caribbean folklore, a creature who removes her skin and turns into a ball of fire. And she sucks the blood of children. Right. So in this village, a child had died and people were convinced that a sukuya killed the child. And it was this old woman living by herself and she was killed because people were convinced that she was a sukuya. So what is real? So it's like, yes, these are stories. And yes, I'm writing fiction, but this, these stories are very real to some people. And this, and that goes to the extreme end. We're not even talking about, you know, historical events where, where, you know, you've lost all documentation and you're just relying on what people said happened, you know? So it's really hard to figure what is real or not real. And even in this story, you know, <laughs> Serenity is trying to, decide well she's not trying to decide but i try not to give it try to spoil anything but the concept of what is real and not real is is there is ever present yeah i I, it's so interesting that you bring up that story because to some degree it almost doesn't matter if it's actually really real because Mm -hmm. if it's really real to people they will react accordingly to things that they think are involved in that element, whatever it happens to be. And so it has real world impact, I will say, rather than consequence, I'll say impact because that can be neutral. Uh, Yeah. yeah, I mean, because then, then your story just gets another element to it, which Mm -hmm. is because this Island where people say, Oh, it's not real. What are you talking about? I don't know, but it is. And, and, now you have these characters experiencing this thing that perhaps at one point they didn't think was real, but now they've had an experience. They have to explain by treating it as though it is. And that has, yeah. in this case, nightmarish <laughs> concerns. Yes. yes. Yeah. It, you know, it, you're right. It doesn't matter if it's real or not. The consequences are real or the impact is real. So, you know, does it even matter? Yeah. I mean, I, to some degree it doesn't. Yeah. Cause you, you, are dealing with people who think it is real and and there's no proof that they're wrong is there's no proof that it's a tough wrong. one yeah like, <laughs> how, how what do you do because I, I remember in in i think it was graduate school uh one of my professors was saying was talking about i can't remember what um anthropologist but like this anthropologist mm-hmm. from from like england or whatever went to someplace like in africa or south america i can't remember where he went uh and he was talking to these people and they kept saying uh, magic. They kept like a house would fall on somebody and they'd say, oh, it was mm-hmm. magic. And he was mm-hmm. like, well, we would just say coincidence. And then he realized like it doesn't matter to them whether or not it, it's a coincidence or if it's actually magic. At the end of the day, something has happened that has no explanation and we must deal with the reality of the unexplained phenomenon. And they just refer to it, all of those unexplained phenomenon as magic. Yes. And and like even with the incident that happened recently with the kids in the Amazon jungle, how they survived 40 days. Yeah. Right. So remember, um, people were saying they survived because their family equipped them with the skills to survive in the jungle. But then the grandfather has said that he had to beg the duendes, he called them. And it was I got really excited about that because again, another manifestation of a folklore character. He called them duendes, these the spirits of the in the forest. He had to ask them to give back the children. And he had to beg them to give back the children, and they decided to acquiesce. So who's to say which 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 instance is true? But all that matters is that the children survived. 
and yeah. they're, they're back. So, yeah, we yeah. should be grateful either way. Whichever one exactly. is the true answer, the kids are alive. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's so fascinating that there's a lot of really interesting and while our, this podcast isn't necessarily about that per se, but there's a lot of like interesting, fun space to sort of think about possibility and what belief is and mm-hmm. those kinds of questions. And I'm, I find them really interesting, understanding what people believe, how much they believe it uh, and and what they do as a consequence of what they believe. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I will say from as somebody who is interested in Caribbean folklore, I am still desperately trying to find the good places to get knowledge because let me tell you, I got some <laughs> weird books from the library, but I don't know how credible any of them are. <laughs> Even doing, as I said, doing research um, about Caribbean folklore, you really have to interview and speak to like the elders in a community about stuff oh. that they would have heard growing up. And that is why I, especially I, I try to write in this space because, you know, it was, it's, it's an oral storytelling type of culture. And a lot of this stuff is not written down. And g- luckily for me, you know, we have descriptions of the creatures and what they do, but rarely how to stop them. So I get to create my own interesting ways of how to stop these creatures because you know most people just warn you to stay away from them or don't do something or this is what happens when you're greedy or selfish but there is rare for for you to actually know how to kill or how to stop <laughs> the person i mean the creature right yeah um and all of it again is about speaking to elders finding out what they knew looking at the different manifestations of folklore in um on, in africa and latin america and seeing what um, what are the legends and myths around those characters, and then you can decide how you want to create or adapt your own. That's exciting. Yeah. So everybody listen to this podcast again. You're going to learn a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so before we wrap up, I have to ask you a, a silly question. Okay. Because I, I tried to Google it, and I don't... I don't know if what I found is correct, but what the mm-hmm. heck are spinach fries? <laughs> So I laugh. I'm laughing because I would never have expected that question. Okay, so <laughs> basically, a, a when you're saying something is is a fry, is like a is like a batter of flour, water, and some spices. So if you have like chicken seasoning or oxo or Maggie seasoning or um, what do you call it? Like old, well, I think in America it, it may be obe. Like some sort of strong seasoning in a batter and it's fried up. That would be something called a fry. Okay. So the main ingredient then would be spinach. So you will put spinach, you will cut up the spinach. Some people might steam it before. Some people may just use the actual leaves. And you would put the spinach in this batter and you would fry it up and it would look like a, a, a ball, like kind of like, um. oh gosh, I was going to say a fish cake, but you guys wouldn't, wouldn't know what that is. I, I know what a fish cake is though, yeah. Okay, good, good. So it's kind of like a, a ball of something. So be- when you use spinach, it'll be a spinach fries. If you had to use corned beef, some people use corned beef, it will be a corned beef, a corned beef fry, you know? That is so inter- That is an interesting thing. So like in, in the United States, I can't speak to every country, but in the United States, mm-hmm. I was thinking what could be spinach fries, like a, like a topping made of spinach you would put on <laughs> French fries because pretty much everything when we think of fries, we think french fries is what we or some sort of potato or potato like thing that's been put in oil and cooked 
but this we would use fritters here while you would say fry and i find that as a language thing really interesting yeah and i want to trace this like when when did we diverge these terms and end (laughs) up in these places who knows who knows (laughs) like um i really love it i know i i love how you know how you connect these elements and you know this is way you know, I like racing about certain things just so you can see the connections between different countries because some people may not know about Barbados, I've never been, but then they might see a, a food or a dish and recognize it. And suddenly you seem a lot more closer than separated. And that's why I love about, about stories. I, I agree. Yeah, you're, you're completely right. Finding those like common ground. I yeah. say this a lot because people will like talk about like oh i can't i can't identify with this character because they're not they're not like me like i'm a man and the character's a woman and i'm always mm-hmm. sitting here going that that's nonsense because of yes. course you can because we are different but we're not that different exactly like, we have feelings <laughs> we, we like food like there's <laughs> you know there's lots of things you can find lots of common ground we get scared you know yes. like in this book like i also would be scared if if I was being followed by faceless <laughs> children with backwards feet. So I'm just saying. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. You know, it's so funny to hear you talk about it like that because, you know, I, I was so focused on, oh, so there's a, a point in the book when I write, when somebody tells Serenity that real horror is losing the people you love. And I remember stopping at that point in the book and going, shoot, this is what this book is about. Yeah. <laughs> and so I had to go back and like revise and rethink the perspective and everything because that that's what the book is about. Is about, you know, yes, it's true faceless children. And yes, there's a lot of horror, but it's really the true real horror is losing people you love. Yeah. And there's nothing that can be worse than that. And that's what Serenity had to learn. That's a great lesson to learn. Yeah. Well, okay. So I have to ask, I have two simple questions. Well, maybe simple. I don't know. Uh, Theoretically, they're simple. One is, uh, what are you working on next that you were allowed to tell us about? So um, I'm working on um, a Josephine sequel, which is a would be a surprise to 2021 Shakira as well. Because, you know, I when I finished Josephine Against the Sea, I had no intention of it being a series in any way. But when I was... um, looking over I think my final revision I got an idea for a sequel and so um, Scholastic bought that book it's called Josephine Against the Heartman and in Barbadian Legend this is one of the um, folklore um, elements here that that is popular here in Barbados is a person called the Heartman and it's a man who has made a pact with the devil he sold his soul to the devil um, for riches but he had to pay off his debt he has to sacrifice hearts children's hearts to the devil so the 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 folklore is that you have to be inside before it gets dark if not the heart man who travels the streets in a hearse is going to is waiting for you to 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 find you to cut your heart out and really this is a story just to get kids to be inside before it's you know it, it gets dark at night but um when I was doing my research, I found out that the Heart Man is actually based off of a real serial killer that we had back in the fifties. You know, um, and you know, and well, I'm I don't want to give away everything. So, but he was actually based off of a a, a real serial killer. So, um, Josephine, <laughs> this poor girl, has had is going to have an encounter 
with the heart man and she's gonna have to save the heart man um save save really the tongue from the heart man so i actually finished the second draft recently and i i'm really enjoying it i mean it was a challenge to write a sequel that was unplanned because let me tell you i screamed at my at past past <laughs> me because you know i would think of, of this great plot and then i would go back and be like oh shoot no you said this in the first book so no you can't you can't do <laughs> like you can't be like oh i lied you know that's such a cop out you can't do that <laughs> so it was a challenge to try to make all the elements work but i think well we'll see what my editor says but i think they work well now but that is hopefully coming out in 2024 excellent well that's very yeah. exciting yeah so if folks want to find out where you and your things are where, where 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 are the best places to find you i'm on instagram most of the time at shakira writes and that's s-h-a-k-i-r-a-h there's an h at the end of shakira which has caused me no like insurmountable amount of stress over the years because everyone gets <laughs> spells Shakira without the itch. So Shakira of an itch writes and I'm on Instagram. I am on Twitter still, but I mainly just retweet stuff. Um, Instagram is where I, I post more, um, more in-depth posts. And yeah, you can find me there. And you have a website. Oh, I do have a website. Crap. Yeah, my website is shakiraborn.com. <laughs> um, so you can find all the links to the social media and um, books I have a very, very old blog post, blog post there. I keep saying I'm going to write more blog posts, but I never do. And um, I am going to start a newsletter this year. So oh, you can sign up for the newsletter on that website as well. Well, excellent. Well, perfect. Well, yes. everybody should go by Nightmare Island, which yes. is at the time of this recording available so everybody can go get it. Yes. Uh, Shakira, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I had a good time. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're most welcome. And do do scream at me when when the, your next book comes out, because I will also talk to you about that book because it Yay! sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah. I can't <laughs> wait to talk about that one. Oh, excellent. Well, we only have to wait 8,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for folks at home, uh, make sure to go check out all the Shakira stuff. Please buy the book and all of that good stuff uh, for us. Do go to skiffyandfanny.com if you want to find more episodes and things. We do have a newsletter, um, which is just slash newsletter. And we're on pretty much all the social media sites. But the ones that matter are on our website because there's like 8,000 Twitter variants right now. And I can't keep track. Uh, and we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanny if you want to support the show. For me, I'm at seanduke.net and I stream on Twitch at Alphabet Streams from, uh, at 7 o'clock every Tuesday, Thursday, 7 Central. I also am on Patreon at patreon.com slash the joy factory. And I'm also on various social media sites. You can usually just find me as Sean Duke or grand Moff Duke occasionally, but just go to my Twitter if you want to find out where all my other ones are. Cause I have a link tree. Anyway, I'm done. I'm done saying stuff about me. Thanks again, Shakira. This was lovely. <laughs> If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. 
Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening.